Welcome to Rings and Realms, Episode 3. This week on the Rings of Power, we got to see Numenor for the first time, which was amazing. We got to meet Elendil and see him interact with his family. We got to see the stranger begin to learn some English. We saw the triumphant confirmation of one of my theories about Halbrand. And of course, we got the near reveal of one of the big bad guys of season one. There is so much to talk about in this episode. Let's get to it. segment, we're going to look at some of the internal themes of episode three, by which I mean not the ways in which some of the larger themes that we're tracking through the whole season came up in this episode, but some of the ways in which this episode was internally tied together. And I connect a lot of these things to the title of this episode, which was Adar. Now, on the one hand, of course, Adar is the name of the big boss of the orcs, whom is, who is nearly, but not quite, revealed to us at the very end of the episode. But the word Adar in Quenya means father. And I think that there were a lot of father figures that were in close focus in this episode. In fact, the more I began thinking about that, the more I realized that the father figures were really some of the things which emphasized the primary drama of this entire episode. Elendil, of course, is really at the centerpiece, I think, of the whole Numenor story that we see in this episode. And what I mean by that, it's clear that in Numenor, we have a, a significant cultural tension, right? There is the, the mainstream culture of Numenor, which is highly antagonistic to the elves, and which is um, highly sort of nationalistic, right? Uh, promoting Numenor um, and not thinking about their old alliances or their old ways, right? They have, uh, this is a relatively new uh, departure from their old roots. But it's clear that there are some, as we would expect from reading Tolkien, there are some in Numenor who still recall that. And Elendil seemed to me to be positioned right in the middle of that. Um, and I think that we see this tension uh, most clearly, the tension between his attempt to uh, sort of toe the line and be accepted, remain accepted, not get in trouble in the current society, as well as remembering uh, the older ways. I think we see that worked out really clearly with his family when he is acting as a father to his children, right? The conversation in particular between Elendil and Isildur and Aarion, his daughter, um, I thought really emphasized this, where we see, we hear that not only is Isildur planning to deviate from the Numenorean mainstream plan, he's not going to go on and take his test to be a cadet, at sea, right, which is clearly the path to acceptance uh, within, within that society and which Elendil wants him to do. But you can see how Elendil himself is torn. He seems to be advising his own children against his own inclinations. And in a sense, his children seem to be reflecting some of his own uh, natural inclinations, what he really believes, not what he's telling them to do. Um, so, for instance, we hear that his other son, Anarion, whom we have not met, um, has already gone his own way in some way that's not specified, and that Isildur seems to be looking to go in the same direction. So that tension within the Elendil family uh, seems to be a, a really important location 
for our, our trying to understand the nature of Numenorean society and the pressures of living there in Numenor at the time of the story. But now, even above all of this, looms another father figure in Numenor, and that's Tar Palantir the king. So the king of neither of the rulers that we meet, uh, Muriel, the queen regent, and the other very powerful person, Ferizan, um, neither one of them is ruling. Neither one of them is the monarch of Numenor. Um, and so therefore, I was very excited when I discovered that uh, because I believed that that meant that Tar Palantir would still be king. Tar Palantir is a very exciting figure in the Numenorean history that Tolkien wrote because Tar Palantir is the, the, the king that tried to turn the tide. Numenor had been in decline, increasingly in antagonism with the elves and rebellion against the Valar, but Tar Palantir tried to turn it around. Tar Palantir becomes king and he is one of the faithful and he tries to bring Numenor back, but the whole rest of Numenor resists him, right? And then eventually when he dies, uh, uh, he is, uh, after his succession, things continue to go sharply downhill. That's what we see in Tolkien's stories. So I was suspecting that uh, Tar Palantir, of course, is Muriel's father in the books as well. So I was suspecting that he was still alive. And of course, in this episode, we learned that Tar Palantir has actually been deposed and constrained, right? He lives in a tower now. Um, and yet, I think we can see his connection with Muriel. Muriel was appearing to be endorsing the public, you know, the, the mainstream view, the anti-elf, anti-Valar, Numenor for Numenor, uh, 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 you know, concept um, in, uh, in, in most of her speeches. But I think it's pretty clear that she's playing a deep game here and is working with her father uh, to, um, to, to, to try to move forward um, the, uh, the faithful. So I think that's one of the political things we can see happening. But again, the absent never appeared on camera, figure of Tar Palantir kind of looming over uh, the Numenorean landscape. I think it was a really, really important figure. Now, similarly, another central figure who did not play the primary role, um, but who kind of dominated, in a sense, the storyline um, in the Harfoot story in episode three was Largo the with the presumably broken ankle. I'm not a physician and I'm not equipped to diagnose. However, it did not sound good there in episode two uh, when that happened. It sounds like he's probably got a broken bone, but he's still, I don't know, he splinted it or something. He's still trying uh, uh, to walk because if, they, if they, they can't migrate with the rest of the clan, they'll be left behind. And that's the big question, right? The big question that looms over the Harfoot sections of this episode is, are the Brandyfoots going to be left behind? Are they going to be able to go with them? And this is all about Largo. You can see his separation and through him, their separation from the rest of the clan while the festival is happening and all of the other Harfoots are out doing their procession and everything. The Brandyfoots are in their wagon, right? The Brandyfoots are, 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 are aside, talking amongst themselves, worrying about whether or not they're going to continue, whether they're going to be left behind, right? So notice the parallel here. We have one 
father figure, the king, Tarpalantir, who is like locked in a tower or something. I don't know if he's sick. I don't know if he's imprisoned, um, but he's certainly uh, sort of marginalized there. And then you have Largo, who's laid up, right, and who is also separated from the rest of his clan. And again, the question there is, are they going to be able to continue? So these father figures uh, play a really interesting role as kind of the centerpieces of their storylines. And then, of course, in the end, we have the orcs um, and their father figure, Adar, right? Um, and there's a lot of speculation, of course, about who Adar is. This is one of the first major villains uh, that we've been introduced to by name. Many people, of course, are speculating maybe he's Sauron. I don't believe that he is Sauron. My suspicion, because he is called Adar, because he's called father, the orcs call him father, um, I believe that likely, what is likeliest is that he may be an ancient corrupt elf. So when Morgoth made the orcs, according to this one theory of the origin of orcs, um, when Morgoth made the orcs, he corrupted, he captured and corrupted some of the elves and from those corrupted elves bred the orcs. That's where they came from. So it's possible that one of those original corrupted elves still survives, as why wouldn't they? They're elves, right? Um, and so that might be what we're seeing in Adar, which would explain why the orcs call him father and why they revere him so much. One of the things that really struck me about how light and darkness were played off each other in this episode was the orcs, right? So we talked about last time how one of the things that was consistent, darkness was associated with down below, right? Underneath the floorboards, underneath the ground, down into the sea, right? And of course, a great deal of the episode, several of the, of this, you know, the whole r and section is focused on the orc tunnels as they're going through. But ironically, Everything that we saw in that, in, in that episode that took place in the orc tunnels, that dark place down below, was in the blazing sunlight, right? It was right at the edge of where the tunnel meets the open air as they were extending the tunnel, uh, looking for something. Uh, one would guess perhaps Theo's sword is what they're looking for. But in any case, they were extending the orc tunnels. Um, so you had... It was, it was a very dark, those are very dark scenes, of course, with, uh, with torture and, and, and fighting and people dying, right? And yet, again, everything was happening in the blazing sunlight. And I thought that, that was, it, it was a really interesting uh, kind of reversal of our expectations of darkness and light as they have been set up. And the other thing that I thought that it mapped onto in a really interesting way was the reveal of Adar at the end, right? We've been shown how horrible the orcs are, looking at them uh, torturing and toying with the elves. And then we find out who is this orc father figure, right, who's going to be revealed at the end. And we would expect him uh, to be darker and more gruesome and more foul even than the orcs themselves. We didn't get to see him very clearly, right, as he did not quite come into focus there at the cliffhanger ending of the episode. However, um, what we did see of him showed that he, in fact, uh, looks fair, right? Presumably, he feels foul, um, but he looked pretty fair. And I thought that that was interestingly playing off all of this very unexpectedly brightly lit orc scenes, which were uh, really in conflict um, with the, the, the darkness that was being depicted there. But 
the light and darkness theme has really been predominantly so far about Galadriel, and I think it's there again that we can see her pursuing. There was less talk explicitly about light and darkness in this episode, and yet the idea of her choosing which light to follow, to, to discern between the true light and the false light, I think was clearly in place here. And where we mostly see it with Galadriel is in her choice of human allies, right? So we know that uh, she lays out for us, there are the two groups of humans. There are those who sided with the elves, and there are those who sided with Morgoth, right? Um, And so it would seem clearly to map onto the humans of the light and the humans of the darkness, right, who were in the darkness with Morgoth. Now, um, but it's clearly not that simple. Even though light is explicitly associated with with Numenor and the Numenorians, it's, it's it's the land of the star, right? And yet... There's clearly a lot of darkness there. There's a big question that looms over them. From the first moment she wakes up at the very beginning of the episode, uh, Galadriel's first words about the Numenorians are saviors or captors. And that's the big question. Which one are they? Saviors or captors? By the way, notice uh, those of you who know Tolkien's stories of Numenor will recognize that's exa- those are exactly the two different postures in which the Numenorians returned to Middle-earth over the course of the history of the Second Age. Sometimes they had come to Middle-earth as saviors and were saving the day. Sometimes they came to Middle-earth as captors, taking slaves and bringing them back to Numenor. Um, So it's a really relevant question for Galadriel to wake up and ask about the Numenorians who have captured her. But her decision in this episode is very much about the human allies. There's Halbrand, the representative of these men of the darkness, former allies of Morgoth, and Elendil representing the Numenorians, right? Um, And she has now, in two separate episodes, promised that she could deliver an army to take to the Southlands, right? And so we're going to have to see how she is going to manage this choice of allies and whether she's going to end up following the true light or being distracted by the false light. Okay, as I explained way back in the introductory episode, the fall of Numenor, the decline of Numenor, is closely connected with the theme of death and mortality. Now, death and mortality didn't come up a lot explicitly in episode three. I'm still going to mention Numenor and Numenor's apparent rebellion against the Eldar and the Valar uh, in this section, however, because as I say, this is something that I expect to be developed more and more explicitly. They don't mention it, right? But of course you wouldn't expect them to. When we're first seeing the civilization of Numenor and we're finding their antagonism to the elves and their antagonism to the Valar, they're not going to explain that initially. They themselves aren't going to explain it in terms of, you know, they're not just going to say, well, we really wish we could live forever and we're bitter that we can't, so we're going to rebel like children, right? That would sound bad, right? The narrator, like in Tolkien's Akala, can tell us that that's, you know, the fear that really lies behind it. But they're not going to just come out and say it, right, in the opening episode. But I'm expecting that to grow as we move forward. But there was one moment in episode three that I thought was really, really fascinating, setting up this question of mortality. 
And that moment was the moment in which Elendil and Galadriel are together looking at the tapestry in the House of Lore. We get this tapestry that shows Elrond and Elros, this tapestry which shows the choices of the half-elven. Elrond standing on the one side with the elves, and Elros, his brother, standing on the other side with the humans. And standing in front of this tapestry, which itself recalls the mixed elf and human background of Numenor in the characters of Elrond and Elros in parallel, are Elendil and Galadriel. Now they're standing switched. Elendil is on the right-hand side and, and Galadriel on the left-hand side. So Elendil is standing in front of the elf side and Galadriel in front of the human side. Again, demonstrating, recalling that intermingling of the fates of elves and men, which was present at the beginning of Numenor. And of course, in that moment, that was the moment when it really struck home to Elendil. He'd heard of Goadriel, right? She's apparently famous in Numenor. Um, and yet it was only really in that moment when it kind of clicks for him. Oh yeah, you knew Elros personally, the guy who is the founder of our nation thousands of years ago. Yeah, yeah, you actually knew him, right? Um, and so we, we get this glimpse into the sort of awareness, right? The awareness of the longevity of the elves and the swifter mortality uh, of the humans in Numenor. So again, we didn't see that really coming to a head. We don't see the evidence of that underlying their rebellion, but I think we're being prepared for that there, uh, in, uh, especially from that scene. But the place that I found most moving uh, the discussion of death and mortality in this episode was definitely with the Harfoots, right? Um, first of all, we, of course, got that catalog of, of the slain, catalog of the dead Harfoots, right? Which included, of course, if you noticed, I believe, all of Poppy's family. Um, when you listen to the recitation of the names, it sounds like Poppy's parents and then three siblings, I think I counted. Um, so Poppy seems to have been part of a big family, all of whom have died, and she's the only survivor. So um, death is very present in a very personal way, even apart from the Brandyfoot's concerns that they too are going to be left behind and might not survive, right? But remember in the festival that leads up to, that sort of concludes with the reading of the names. Oh, and I almost forgot. Um, there was also that, did you catch that moment um, when Sadok Burroughs, the, 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 you know, the, the, the senior hobbit, the sort of uh, wise man figure of the, of, of the clan, reads who I believe to be his own wife's name? Um, there was that moment where we see his face close up um, when he reads the name of a woman, I think it was Daffodil Burroughs, um, which I suspect of being his own wife. Um, so again, we were seeing the memory of death very personally among the Harfoots. But there were two things that were at play there that seemed to me really, really striking in thinking about the issue of mortality, generally speaking. One was the procession during the festival when uh, Sadok would say, nobody goes off trail. And then everybody says, and nobody walks alone, right? And they kept chanting that back and forth. Nobody goes off trail and nobody walks alone. This is like the creed of the Harfoots, right? And notice how within that creed, within that repeated, those repeated phrases are balanced two different things, right? One, the affirmation of unity, right? We are all together. We all stick together. Nobody walks alone. But at the same time, nobody goes off trail. Um, like, you better, it's, it's a prohibition. You better not go off trail, right? Because if you do, you're going to be left behind. Um, 
And so although there is this affirmation of life, this affirmation of unity, this affirmation of togetherness, there is also, even within that creed itself, a memory, uh, an acknowledgement of separation, of loss, of, uh, of, of, of death itself, right? And once again, even more poignantly, I think that this tension is demonstrated to us when we're hearing the list of names. Do you remember what all the Harfoots said, the sort of ritual response with which they were sort of toasting and remembering the memories, right, of the dead Harfoots um, that have been left behind, right? Um, left behind is used as a, uh, as a metaphor for death, right? We're going to read the name of the left behinds meaning the people who have died, the Harfoots who have died before, right? Um, but remember, there's, a, there's an almost ironic acknowledgement of this. When he le- reads, when Sadok reads the names of those left behind, the crowd responds, we wait for you. Which, as I said, to me, suggests there's a real tension there. Because, of course, that's exactly what the clan did not do. They have been left behind because the clan didn't wait for them. Now, many of the things described, I mean, they're... A lot of them accidental deaths. It sounds like Sadok's wife was killed by wolves. Uh, Poppy's family died in a landslide. Um, so it's not like they're all just like abandoned on the side of the trail or something. But the Brandyfoots are very much afraid of being abandoned on the side of the trail and having their names therefore stamped uh, in among the left behinds, as Marigold says. So it's, uh, but again, in the memorial moment, right, within that festival moment, they say, we wait for you, by which they mean we remember you. That remembrance is this way of sort of transcending mortality, holding alive, keeping alive the memory of those that have passed, right? They don't literally wait for them. They can't literally wait for them, right? Death cannot be, uh, cannot be undone, right? Mortality is a reality in the Harfoot's world, and yet there's a desire, right? There's this sort of almost imagined space, in which here now in this festival, we do, in our, in our minds and our imaginations, we do wait for you. This longing for the togetherness, that nobody should ever walk alone, that nobody should ever be left behind. And yet the continual reminder that people are being continuously left behind. I thought that that entire scene really played out the drama of, of mortality among the mortal races, more poignantly than anything we have seen yet. Now, we don't make much progress in the healing department in this episode, but one of the things that we do see is the ongoing movement of people in pain. Right? First, we learn of Poppy's grief. We discover that Poppy's an orphan and is dealing with the, the, the continuous suffering of the death of her family. Right? This, this is a, a, a new healing thing that we discover the need for in this episode. Um, but I think the two major figures that I would focus on are Largo and Galadriel, which I think form a fascinating parallel during this episode. Largo, of course, is suffering from his probably broken ankle. Um, But what we see, we don't see him getting healed. We don't even see him seeking healing. What we see him doing instead is trying to pretend that he's not injured, right? We see him struggling to insist he can walk. 
He can, go, he can pull his wagon because he's desperately afraid that his family is going to be left behind, um, that his whole family could be cut off from the tribe if he can't walk. So he is determined to walk and pull his wagon, even though we see he is not in any way physically capable of doing that. And all of this seems to me to form a clear parallel externally to what we see happening with Galadriel internally. Galadriel is still carrying the pain. She is still not in a good place. Galadriel needs healing as Elrond perceived, and as we see more and more uh, examples of, more and more reason uh, to, to believe. A lot of people disliked Galadriel's actions when she was introduced to Miriel, when she appears before the Numenorean court. Galadriel is angry at the Numenoreans. She is resentful of the Numenoreans. But I think there, again, we see she, uh, we see her, her, her suffering. We see Galadriel's pain. She has been pursuing her quest alone, right? And here are potential allies, people who have the island that they have, people who have the strength and the wealth that they have in Numenor because they were the allies of the elves and stood with them in battle. And now they haven't. Now they've cut themselves off. They could help, but they won't. And Galadriel, the commander of the armies, Galadriel, the one who has been trying to keep this torch alive uh, in pursuing the enemy, uh, who knows how much she needed their has needed their help for a long time, um, has not forgotten nor forgiven that they've not given this. So again, even her bad behavior, which is admittedly bad behavior uh, before uh, Queen Muriel Regent there, um, uh, the Queen Regent Muriel there, uh, is definitely um, an expression, I think, of her ongoing pain. Like Largo, Galadriel is trying to continue, not admitting that she's suffering, not admitting that she really needs healing, and that she cannot pull her wagon uh, in, this, in the way uh, that she really believes that she can and wants to show that she can. The last point I would make about healing is a reference that Elendil made, which came kind of out of nowhere and really surprised me, a way in which the Numenorians themselves were brought into this healing theme. Um, he tells Isildur that the watery part of the world has great power to heal the deepest of griefs. And Isildur calls him on it and, 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 and challenges him and says, oh yeah, you mean like it's done for you, right? What it is that Elendil means, what griefs exactly are they talking about? How and why has the sea failed Elendil himself, right? That was such a tantalizing um, moment, a tantalizing exchange, which shows there is also woundedness within Elendil, right? There is some, Elendil himself is in need of healing. We can see his family in need of healing, the tensions among his family, right? Um, and that hint that the sea, which is clearly revered, within the standard status quo of Numenorean society, right? The sea is not going to do it, right? The mainstream Numenorean society, the sort of new religion of the Numenoreans, is not going to bring the healing that Elendil really needs. Now, clearly, in the middle of the friendship theme in this episode, we have one of our big new characters, Elendil, whom, as we learned during the episode, whose name means elf friend. 
Um, and this is a really important thing. The element of elf friendship in not only Elendil's name, but in, in Elendil's character has been an absolutely essential part of the whole idea of Elendil from the very first time Tolkien invents the character. The character of Elendil comes in as Tolkien had the idea of the last alliance fighting against Sauron at the end of the Second Age. And he knew he was going to have the High King of the Elves and a king among humans. He didn't even have the backstory worked out. And, but he wanted to name the human elf friend, uh, right? And so that began this whole thing. And Tolkien wrote multiple stories that involved this central figure called Elendil or called Elf Friend, even beyond uh, his, his sort of regular Middle-earth writings. Um, so anyway, this idea of elf friendship um, and the way in which Elendil, as the leader of the faithful, those Numenorians who are still remembering their alliance with the elves and their allegiance to the Valar. This is, this is clearly a really, really central thing. We see Elendil's character himself in, uh, in crisis in this episode, as I've talked about before, right? He doesn't really want uh, to uh, come out to everybody, to be revealed as, in his heart, one of the faithful, even though it's pretty clear that he is. That moment when he discloses himself to Galadriel, when he's acting as her captor, but then speaks to her in Quenya, saying, you're not hated by everyone, my lady, right? Um, beautiful, beautiful moment, this sort of turning point in Elendil's character. Um, so that's going to be a really essential thing, and I really enjoyed the relationship between Elendil and Galadriel. That combination, not only of, of friendship, but even this uh, sort of parental role, even towards Galadriel. He had that paternal moment uh, when he told her, when he said that, that wonderful line about how his daughter runs fast and his son runs blind and her eyes bore a striking resemblance to both of them. Remember that? Uh, I love that. Um, so we can see him wanting to, to, to help her, wanting to correct her even, again, being in that parental role. And yet, at the same time, he also acknowledges she is ancient, she is legendary, she is experienced, and he's this small, local, recent, mortal guy, right? So the, the dynamics of that friendship were really fascinating, uh, and I am so excited for Elendil's character and Elendil's character development over the course of the entire show. I think he's strong right now. I think he's going to be awesome. Uh, by the end of the show. Of course, we also had the friendship between Galadriel and Halbrand, um, which operates on a different kind of level. Now, let me just pause for a second to acknowledge, I know there's a lot of rumors, there's a lot of speculation, there's a lot of anxiety among Tolkien fans um, who uh, are wondering whether or not there's going to be uh, a romantic relationship between Halbrand and Galadriel. My own personal sense of that from uh, you know watching episode three carefully I think there's clearly some tension there, right? Uh, there's, there's, there's clearly some attraction there um, that kind of lends a little bit of spice to their interactions, the interactions between Halbrand and Galadriel. Um, but I myself do not believe that Galadriel is going to end up falling madly in love with Halbrand. Um, should Halbrand fall in love with her, I wouldn't be surprised, as um, really quite a large percentage of people who meet Galadriel in the Fellowship of the Ring fall in love with her, so that's, I think, to be understood. But I don't expect Galadriel to be falling head over heels for Halbrand. Um, 
we'll see. Um, I'll be surprised and not particularly happy if we do see that happen. Um, but, uh, but as I say, I'm not really expecting that. But their relationship, I think, is interesting, especially when we had that sort of parallel between her, her growing relationship with Alendo and her, uh, and her slightly longer established friendship with Halbrand. Um, watching those two as sort of foils for each other, those two relationships as foils for each other, I think is going to be interesting to see. Of course, the friendship between Poppy and Nori is a really, was a really core element, I thought, of this episode. We saw several instances of it, one of them going out on a limb for the other. But of course, all of that was made most poignant by the fact that when we learn that Poppy is an orphan and that she has been essentially taken in um, to the Brandyfoot family, and I could not help but remember... Uh, the, the reference that Poppy made um, when she was giving Nori a hard time uh, for taking in the stranger when they were pulling him in the wagon uh, back in episode two. And uh, Poppy makes that reference to how Nori, you know, takes in eagle, baby eagles with broken wings, right? Remember Nori's like, that was one time, right? Um, but clearly there's another time when she took in a stray, right, who needed a family, and that's Poppy herself. Um, so those lines become much more poignant in retrospect when we, when we begin to see that, that new piece that was fit in here in episode three. And of course, finally, the culminating reference to friendship, the sort of central and explicit reference to friendship was with the stranger, right? This new footing on which we see the stranger interacting with Nori, in particular, of course, and the rest of the Brandyfoots as a whole. The disclosure of the stranger, the near exiling or decaravanning, which I kind of love, right? Exile implies you're banished from the land. You have to have land. You have to have boundaries in order to be exiled beyond the boundaries, right? Um, so to be decaravaned, right? To be removed from the caravan. I, I liked the word de decaravaned is an awkward word, right? Like it's not a word that we would normally use, right? But of course, they're not speaking English, actually, to each other, right? What we're seeing on film is an implicit translation of that, right? So I, I, myself, I like the idea that uh, the word that is, when they're saying decaravaned, there would have been a word for that in the Harfoot's language, right? Clearly, there would have been a word that meant to be removed from the caravan, not left behind, but like left behind on purpose, right? Um, and we don't have a word for that in our vocabulary. So this kind of, you know, awkward um, uh, uh, word was cobbled together, right, for the translation, for the, for the, for the, for the script, uh, which was decaravaned. But anyway, uh, the stranger comes in and we see him not only speaking English, but we see him in touch with his surroundings. He was completely engulfed in trying to first just comprehend his surroundings and also seem to be consumed with this one idea of those constellations, right? That which seem to be connected to, to his purpose, to his destination. But now we see him watching his surroundings, listening and paying attention. You know, for, we, we, we see him in the distance. I loved the reversal of that, where we've seen the, um, the, the, the Harfoots hiding and, you know, peeking around things and, and, and watching other people. And instead, we have the Harfoots themselves in their ceremony and the stranger peeking around and watching them, right? I thought that that, was that, that, that reflection was pretty neat. Um, but in the end, he comes and offers his friendship, right? And Nori walks towards him and accepts 
his friendship and declares, as she had declared herself his friend back in episode two, now she declares him to her family to be their friend, right? So um, this seems to me a very promising footing for the relationship between the stranger and the Harfoots in general, general and the Brandyfoots in particular, um, uh, moving forward. And of course, it's possible that the stranger will turn out to be the Dark Lord all along, and this will all be a horrible, cruel ploy, but I still don't believe it. Now, there were two major references to fate in this episode, and both of them were explicitly playing off a quotation from The Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings, which I was really, really a huge fan of. One, of course, was Galadriel's passionate recruitment speech to Halbrand when she was confronting him with the fact that she knows she's figured out, right, that he is really the heir of the person who brought together the Southlanders. She knows that he should be king. Um, and she says that our meeting was not a chance meeting. This is really interesting, of course, because chance meeting is a phrase, a hyphenated word, as I described back in, uh, back in episode zero, um, that Tolkien uses a lot to describe a meeting which appears to be by chance, but which is not by chance, which is the work of providence, which is the work, apparently, of fate. And Galadriel, in fact, dismisses the idea it, it wasn't chance. It wasn't fate. It wasn't destiny. It wasn't any of those vague words, right, that you humans use um, uh, to describe something that you lack the conviction to, to name, she says, right? And then she says, um, our meeting was the work of something greater. Uh, one of the things that I loved about that was it reminded me of Gandalf's words to Frodo in The Fellowship of the Ring in chapter two, uh, at the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring, um, when he tells Frodo that he was meant to find the ring, that there was a greater power at work there. Um, and the thing I love particularly is that Galadriel, on the one hand, says, hey, you humans are afraid to name the power that is actually moving here, and then she doesn't name the power either, right? She just says something greater. Um, and that reminded me very much of Gandalf, who says, I can put it no plainer than to say that, that Bilbo was meant to find the ring. And I always, it always makes me laugh. I'm always like, Gandalf, you, you, can't, you physically can't be any plainer than that. You could actually say what the power was, um, but he doesn't say, right? And Galadriel dodges it in the same way. Uh, and that sort of made me laugh remembering Gandalf. Um, but the, the one which was actually a much closer quotation um, and which I thought was really, really powerful was once again, Nori. Nori's the one who really prominently introduced this theme of fate back in episode two when she was talking about how she felt that she was meant to find the stranger for some reason that she doesn't understand, right? There's some purpose there. There's, some, there's this path laid before her, right? Now, she and her stepmother, Marigold, get into an argument about this, right? Where she says she does not think that this was an accident. And Marigold objects, right? Marigold says, like, do you think you've been touched by the stars? Which is ironic, because, of course, the stranger fell from the stars, and it was Nori who touched him, right? Um, so if he's come from the stars, um, she wasn't touched by the stars, she's the one touching them, which, again, I found kind of delightful. But in any case, um, Marigold challenges this. And then uh, Nori says something interesting. Nori says, I know I'm just one little harfoot in a grand wide world. And of course, 
Those of you who remember, this is a near quotation of a very famous line uh, from the last paragraph of The Hobbit. So let me read you a little bit of that for context, because I think it's very interesting um, uh, in the context of this passage. Gandalf, of course, at the very end, the very last chapter of The Hobbit, is talking to Bilbo, and they're specifically talking about his luck, right? The very remarkable good luck that has pursued Bilbo through his entire adventure. And Gandalf says, You don't really suppose, do you, that all of your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck, just for your sole benefit? You're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm very fond of you. But you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world, after all. Now, notice what Gandalf is doing here. There are two things, two ideas that he's challenging, right? One is that Bilbo's adventures were all arranged merely by luck. And the second is that they were arranged for his sole benefit, right? Neither one of those things is true. It was not arranged for his sole benefit. He was a part of a much larger story. But it's also true that it was not arranged merely by luck which is the other thing that Gandalf seems to be pointing to, right? And so when, uh, when Nori says she's only one little harfoot in a grand wide world, she acknowledges, I know I'm not important, I know I'm not special, right? But, I, uh, but nevertheless, she perceives, right? Like Bilbo did not necessarily, she perceives that there is something to do, that she is part of a greater story. It is a grand wide world, and she is only a little harfoot, and yet she has a role to play. And these events which seem to have been happening by chance, her happening to, to be right there when the stranger landed, right? But her choice to take responsibility for that is, going to, is something that she's supposed to do. And I think here we begin to see that there is clearly going to be the development of this theme of... Um, it being small hands that move the wheels of the world as we saw in the Fellowship of the Ring. So um, when Elrond says that in the Council of Elrond. Um, so I'm going to be interested to see how that continues to develop. But once again, Nori is really at the center of the fate theme. Hi. So this week's episode was real interesting. I have to say this was the first episode where I had some real niggling problems with some plot points that I hope we can dig into in Other Minds and Hands this week. But just some really basic things like the Harfoots are brutal, just leaving them behind and things like that, that I want to kind of dig into a little bit. Um, I was really surprised by the unobservant elements of the elves. They were up in that tower watching the world for so long, but they didn't notice the orcs completely clearing a highway of trees. You know, just a few things that I found a little problematic, um, but I don't really want to focus on that stuff because so much other stuff happened this week that was so exciting and really interesting. Um, and there's going to be a lot to, to piece together, but, you know, we only have a few minutes here. So the thing I want to talk about today is world building, which I've mentioned before. And I know Corey's discussed as well. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about world building using Numenor as kind of our lens for that. And then I also had a question in our Twitter Spaces show last week, um, or maybe it was Other Minds and Hands, <laughs> about uh, 
real life elements uh, imported into film. So how do filmmakers manage that? What do they make it look like? How do they make that happen? Uh, so I'll touch on that one first. So a couple like real life elements, things that you're probably really familiar with is lens flare, right? We hear about that one a lot. You see lens flare in a film and that is to give it kind of the, the reality that the sun coming through the lens of the camera is making a reflection back at you. So it brings real life into the screen. We see it most in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. That is where it got <laughs> its uh, notoriety, perhaps, is the right word for that. Um, but we have seen lens flare in this as well, and I noticed it when they were horse riding um, uh, in Numenor uh, this this time. So it was just a moment where you're like, oh, there's, you know, Im Im imported into the scene to make it seem more realistic. Um, there have been a few other examples of this as well. In episode one, we had blood splatter hitting the camera lens, hitting kind of the fourth wall when they slaughtered the snow troll. So we saw that kind of backfire and hit the camera. Excuse me. Um, and that just kind of brings you into the story. It's a, it's a technique used by filmmakers to make it seem like you're really there. Um, I also noticed it when we got our first look of Isildur um, on the ship. Uh, as about 15 minutes in, I think, when he was um, training for the Navy and a spray of ocean water came up against the ship and we saw a rainbow in the ocean spray. And obviously you wouldn't actually see that on a set unless the sun was hitting it the right way. So that means it was added afterwards. And that was just a nice little moment to bring reality into it. Because if we were out into the sea, we would see rainbows reflected in sea mist. So it's just these nice little ways to kind of tie real life into the story, but also make it feel like you are closer. You are in it. You are part of that story. You could feel the mist, you know, um, it just makes it a bit more realistic. So there's some real world elements about uh, a kind of breaking that fourth world, fourth wall um, to bring you into the story a bit more. World building is the thing I really want to focus on. I thought this episode was glorious in that, specifically for Numenor. So when we say world building, what that means um, is creating this fictional world. It's the elements of that world that make it understandable, believable, and livable. So when a fiction writer is world building, they're not just creating their characters in their house in the forest. They're creating the characters who live in a society, who have grown up with societal pressures, who have grown up in a certain class or sect or role that may define who they are and they have to break out of. It would be influenced by things like economics, politics, uh, religion, government structures. So it's a real societal take of a creative process. Um, it definitely includes history and culture and, and politics and religion. Um, but it also involves like culture and architecture and art and beauty and just all of these things that develop a world. How one views their world can be seen through so many different lenses. Um, if I'm looking at it through the eyes of like a producer of a travel show, I'm going to think about what visuals, what landscapes, what buildings, what food, you know, what are the musics that one would hear walking down a street? I would build my world visually and culturally and communicate communicate that that way. If I'm a creative writer and I'm building a world from scratch, like Numenor, and I know it's not completely from scratch, we have some excellent building blocks from Tolkien, um, we can bring in a lot of influences to help flesh out that world and make it more believable. So I loved, loved the presentation of Numenor um, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one, because I didn't think I'd ever get to see it on film. So it was just bliss to just 
find myself there. Um, but then upon rewatching and rewatching and rewatching, there's so many other things you start to pick out of that. So in terms of filmmaking, I loved the approach. We wake up on a ship. We don't quite know where we're going. He says, you'll know soon enough. We're almost there. So, oh, a little bit of tension, a little bit of, of anticipation. Then we find ourselves down a very narrow channel. We can't see anything yet. It's still quite secretive. And then we see these heads carved into the stone popping out, which I loved because it reminded me of the ruined heads in Peter Jackson's films um, <clears throat> when they were approaching Gondor. And Gondor was mimicked, uh, modeled after Numenor, wasn't it? So we have this kind of beautiful architectural nod to what came before, both filmically by nodding at Peter Jackson's films and within the story. So nodding to Numenor um, and Gondor having that connection. So I loved seeing those faces and seeing that, that heavy carving. Then we approach the bridge and we see the boat just fit through there, um, which my partner was concerned that that was a little bit too close for comfort. And I thought that was a beautiful feat of engineering that they, they built their ships perfectly to fit through that bridge or vice versa. They built the bridge to fit the ships. Um, I also loved the shape of the ship matched uh, Aragorn's crown in the end of Return of the King. So that was quite a nice little nod as well. And I assume there's quite a bit of influence from uh, Alan Lee and John Howe with that one. Um, so I loved those kind of nods. So then we get through the narrow channel and the world opens up. And those two shots, there's, there were many shots of Numenor, but those two shots where we start here and then we go here and we get that huge, beautiful establishing shot were just so impactful. <laughs> um, I really loved the approach. We're like, oh, we're in the island kingdom of Numenor. And then you see it around you and you can take in this island nation and we see the docks and the ships and we can hear the sounds of the water and a busy boatyard and things. And then we pan back and I, I don't know how to describe it. It was almost like Rio de Janeiro where everything is built into these lovely little valleys, but with an incredible Roman feel, right? I mean, people have zoomed in on different parts and we saw a hippodrome. Um, the architecture is, is really reminiscent of, of Roman and Greek architecture. So I quite liked that illusion. It reminded me of Atlantis or what one would picture and has seen in concept art of Atlantis. So it's, it's okay to have those associations as well to be like, ah, oh, this is an interesting civilization. It reminds me of. So then I have this ground level foundation of perhaps it has similar governmental structures, similar religious, similar arts, theater. We know a lot generally about Greek and Roman culture. And most people do, right? There's, there's some kind of general community understanding of those cultures. So having that as a baseline, I thought was really strong and very powerful but also just beautiful. It was so well done. And then later on in the episode, we get the night shot of Numenor with all the lanterns lit and it looked like a living, thriving, incredible city. Seeing a city at night is always one of my favorite things and seeing it on film is really difficult to achieve because of the lighting. But they did such a way that it felt really warm and thriving and alive. So really enjoyed that. Um, also liked the things that we saw after that point. So then we saw Isildur in his uh, uniform for the naval cadets, uh, and it looked very Roman. So there's another association with that. But then we also understand there's a navy. There's a armed forces structure within this. They are auditioning. They are trying out um, to get these roles within the sea crew. We also have the court. 
um, where we see the regent and the consul um, with his medals, which we now know are part of the guilds, aren't they? Um, and the daughter was accepted into the Builders Guild as an apprentice. So there are structures within that. There are training programs professionally to become part of, of this community. Um, Governmental-wise, we know that there is a regent, so that makes you think, ooh, something, somebody else is in charge. We then learn that that person was removed because of their love of the elves. Ooh, we don't like elves in this world. Well, that's interesting, too. Um, especially after building off of the conversation we had with Leif McPherson, the dialect coach on our Twitter Spaces show last Friday. She was telling us about how the word Numenor was pronounced differently by different people in this episode, and how Galadriel says it like an elf. Um, and everyone else says it like men from Numenor, who it, it's quite a political decision to not use the Elvish pronunciation anymore. Um, so for them saying it the way that they say it, they are kind of throwing off their history and saying, no, this is a kingdom for men. You are not welcome here no more. Um, and I thought that was great, especially having that extra information from Leith. Um, and then we continue to build out in little ways, in really lovely little ways. We have the painting in the Hall of Lore where we see Elrond and we can see her association with it. So you get this backstory of Galadriel alongside world building. So we see that at one point they valued their relationship with elves. They painted this mural. They have these scrolls, this library, um, which must be extremely well organized because how quickly he found the information that they needed was very impressive. <laughs> um, so we have this kind of nod to the history that came before while also building out Galadriel's story. She was around when this was founded. She knows the people that were involved in the in the key origination of the land. Then we also have some, some kind of sweet, light little moments. You know, when she's walking through town, first of all, she's floating from rooftop to rooftop, which I thought was actually pretty good CG. Um, there were a few moments of CG that just looked a bit video gamey, but I thought that was pretty nice. Um, and it shows her ability as, abilities as an elf. Um, but also shows us the structure of that town. Um, and then as she's walking through, we see a little bit of that puppet play starring Galadriel. So she's something of a big deal, right? She's legendary. Um, so us taking that in, we start to get a little bit more of an understanding of her backstory. And I think that also helps me understand where she is in her life. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, she's so angry. She's so petulant. Well, this is where she is. She's an angry war leader. Um, she's, she is a bit petulant. She's a bit impatient. She's very singularly focused. So we have to live through this collateral so we can get to the steady ruling monarch. And there's an arc there and it's going to take us five years to see it. Um, so we have to lay some pretty dramatic groundwork. So she starts off as sharp and petulant and determined and focused, you know, so we start there and we have somewhere to go. Um, but I liked that we got to see kind of the Galadriel of legend as well. Um, another thing I'm curious about, uh, I saw some discussion on Twitter about the only thing they saw in ruins were the pillars around the white tree at the very top. And is that kind of a sign that they're letting the elvish things decay? And I thought that was really astute, really nice observation. I don't have an answer for that. Um, I want to zoom in on more parts of it and see if we can see ruins elsewhere because I'm I'm going to guess that there are ruins somewhere if this is such an ancient world. It would be quite telling if all of the elvish elements were in ruins and everything else was generally kept up quite well. Um, 
But yeah, so I mean, it's that's scraping the surface, but these are really just kind of top notes of what we can infer from one look, right? From this one moment in Numenor that I'm going to say, yes, we spent a fair few minutes in Numenor in this episode, but we probably have a one to two minute overview when they first enter and, and through the point where they get to the court. And then maybe another 30 seconds later on with the puppets and the guilds and things like that. Um, from that short amount of time, we get an idea of governmental structure, politics, um, art, architecture, clothing, influence, history, uh, aspirations, gender roles, economy. You know, there's so many things that we were able to infer from just those few visual cues, few visual cues uh, to kind of bring us up to speed with with what this this Numenor is um, and where our characters will fit in. So there's a lot of stuff coming up here that I think is really interesting, but I'm just going to focus on, on those filmic bits for us for right now. Um, thank you so much. I look forward to next week. Please keep your questions and comments coming um, in Twitter or on our YouTube page. We keep an eye on both of them um, and very happy to bring that into our discussion. But thank you very much. One of the big concerns that people have had for a long time about the Rings of Power show was how they were going to handle the time compression. The actual events of the Second Age that are depicted in the show take place in Tolkien's chronology in a couple thousand years. And we knew that they were not going to try to cover a couple thousand years worth of material in the show. They were going to compress that into the time frame of one single generation of humans so that they didn't have to introduce brand new characters between every episode as the mortals kept dying of old age. Uh, so we knew this was going to happen but there, was, there were big questions about what kinds of, of uh, effects this would have on the story as a whole. And the biggest issue, the number one thing that people have been concerned about with this is Numenor and the decline of Numenor, which takes place over, the, over a very long period of time. And the question was, how were you going to capture that? There seemed to be two options, right? One was to compress the decline of Numenor itself. That is to say, to go from everything's great in Numenor and everybody's happy and obedient and well-adjusted to things have gone completely downhill and are now on the verge of collapse within the course of one generation. That would be one way to try to do the decline of Numenor in that sort of compressed timeline. Another place, an another way to do this would be to just jump in near the end of the story. So to have the decline have been going on and just know that we're jumping in to the last generation. Now in episode three, it became clear that they have chosen the second of those two options. And so one of the things that this has meant for a lot of viewers in response to episode three is that they've had to adjust. Many people were assuming they might try to do the first one. So they've been looking forward to seeing on screen the entire progression the entire uh, decline from Numenor in its glory at the beginning of the show all the way down the road uh, towards the final decline of Numenor at the end. Um, and so some people have felt disappointed because we're not seeing that entire trajectory. Now, there are trade-offs in either direction, right? Um, it's going to be hard, it would be hard, rather, to really make the, the, the decline convincing if it happened 
almost overnight, right? To, to see the same generation of people go from the one extreme to the other extreme might be kind of hard to sell, I think. But of course, the, the trade-off on the other side, if all we see is the very tail end of the Numenor story, are we gonna really be able to capture what came before? How are we as viewers going to really be put in contact with the glorious Numenor that was and from which it declined and which we'll never really get a chance to see? Now, of course, we've only begun to see how they're going to try to work that out. But it's extremely clear. That, it's funny. One of the things that actually has sort of confused people most is not how much they've deviated from the timeline, but how much they've stuck with it. Right? In the first two episodes, there were very few clear markers. There were some vague markers, but very few clear markers about how much time had passed, exactly what year in the Second Age is it. A lot of people have been uh, sort of looking in their Appendix Bs and looking at the tale of years and trying to figure out where exactly in the history of the Second Age is this show happening. And very little in the first two episodes made that obvious, exactly where that was. But now here in Episode 3, we got a clear indication. Um, Muriel, the Queen Regent, says um, that um, Numenor has been, you know, in opposition to the elves, right? Elves have been unwelcome in Numenor ever since the days of her grandfather's great-grandfather. Now, her grandfather's great-grandfather was our Adunahor, which is indeed the first king of Numenor to take his name. All the kings of Numenor used to take their names in the elvish languages. He was the first one to, 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 to not do that. And at, in his time, the elves became completely unwelcome. Uh, in Numenor. So they've, this, is exactly, uh, this is exactly correct. They've taken this directly from Tolkien's chronology. And so, so there we have it. What we see happening, therefore, in the, the, the cues that we've gotten here um, from Numenor tell us, first of all, exactly how they're going to do the compression. They are showing us the tail end of the Numenor story. They're showing us a Numenor very much in decline already, um, with tension, clearly, between the faithful, whom I believe to exist, though we haven't clearly seen them yet. Elendil is still trying to uh, hedge his bets. Tarmiriel, uh, she's not yet Tarmiriel, she's not yet the queen. Muriel, the queen regent, is still you know, playing her cards pretty close to the chest too, I think. Um, but I think that we're, we're, we're definitely seeing that tension. Farazan, who is there, who is you know, the, the great counselor uh, that we met briefly in episode three, has not yet risen to power, has not yet claimed the kingship as, uh, according to Tolkien's story, he's going to do. So we can see where that story is positioned um, in relationship to Tolkien's works. But we have to keep in mind, um, this doesn't mean that we need to go back to Appendix B, go back to the Tale of Years, and insist that everything in the Tale of Years should happen in the same order. It is clear that although the Numenorean timeline does seem to be largely preserved, from what Tolkien described in his books. Nevertheless, the rest of the timeline has been shifted to move everything forward. The Rings of Power uh, were fashioned a long time before uh, the decline of Numenor got to this point, long before Isildur and, and Farazan and Elendil were alive, right? But all of those things, so the, um, the, uh, the, the forging of the Rings of Power, the forthcoming war with Sauron, um, I think we can all see that there's going to be a war with Sauron coming, right, sooner or later here. Um, all of those things are being pushed together to the end, to those latter, you know, centuries, the, the, last, uh, the last little chunk of time there 
in the second age. Um, and so I think it's pretty clear that we can see what's happening. This has been an adjustment for people as we have finally gotten some information that helps us to make sense of how this chronology is working. It seems to me to work relatively well, we need to be flexible um, in order to, to, to sort of let things unfold. Remember that in the Peter Jackson adaptations, we were also asked to be flexible, right? To forget about the fact that there was supposed to be a 17-year gap between when Frodo got the ring and when uh, he, uh, uh, he went off on the quest, right? Um, that Gandalf was supposed to have not known about the Nazgul coming to pursue Frodo before he goes herring off to Isengard in order to consult Saruman, right? There are several things in the sequence uh, of the Peter Jackson films which deviate from the sequence of events in The Lord of the Rings. The movies asked us to roll with that. The show is asking us to roll with this too, to understand that they're bringing the Rings of Power plot and these other things forward into those last parts of the Second Age in order to make them align and have their stories intermingle with the story of the decline of Numenor uh, and the war with Sauron and these other things that we're gonna be seeing and then ultimately to the last alliance, I think, in the end. Um, so I think it's fairly clear now how things fit together, and I think we can be okay with it as long as we can be a little flexible. Now, one of the primary pieces of progress that we got in episode three, as far as the larger plot was concerned, was Galadriel figuring out that sigil of Sauron that she's been talking about since the beginning of episode one. Um, and not only does she figure out what that, well, first of all, let's talk about what that is, right? Because there's one thing that I've seen some people comment on, which I, which I think is not quite fair. And that is people saying that like, well, the sigil is obviously Mordor. It's obvious to everybody in the room, except for Goandriel, right? And so supposedly all of the great lore masters of the second age can't figure out, you know, what people on the internet figured out in 15 minutes, right? Um, that, I think, as I say, is quite unfair. And let me talk a little bit about why, right? So, yes, the sigil represents the mountains of Mordor, right? And this is what Galadriel discovers in episode three, that it's not just a sigil of Sauron, it's a map, right? It's a map of Mordor. Again, this was kind of obvious to a lot of us. I mean, maybe you didn't think about it or didn't notice it at first, but as soon as you see it, it's completely obvious, right? And why? Because we're used to looking at the map of Mordor, right? That, that mountain range with its peculiar little, uh, you know, uh, sort of letter C shape, right? Um, and with Mordor in the middle. But what's more, we know that Sauron is associated with Mordor, right? We've been raised on the Lord of the Rings. We, we, we have this clear and absolute association between Mordor, knowing what it looks like on a map, and Sauron, right? But we have to keep in mind, in the Second Age, nobody knew this. Sauron had never established his, uh, his home in Mordor. He had never yet established that as his center of power. So no one in the Second Age had the least reason to connect Sauron, the lieutenant of Morgoth, with that particular patch of real estate, right? That means that we, as viewers of the show, have a significant advantage. We know way more than the people in the story, even the great lore masters in the story, because we know the future. We know what Sauron is going to do in Mordor. Um, and this, by the way, is something that Tolkien does a lot. Tolkien uses this strategy a lot. Very often, when we're reading The Lord of the Rings, we know more than the characters know. And sort of playing on that tension is one of the ways that Tolkien's story works. So I don't object to that, si that similar kind of tactic being used in The Rings of Power. Anyway, 
but here, but that's not the big problem. Here's the really big problem that a lot of that left a lot of people confused after Galadriel explained the records that she found in the House of Lore, uh, explaining that sigil. What she learned is that this was a map that Sauron had left uh, for the orcs and every for, to, for everybody to congregate. This was his backup plan for when Morgoth failed, when Morgoth was destroyed, and he was going to step up and become. Uh, you know, the leader of the bad guys, the chief bad guy on Middle-earth, right? And a lot of people said, wait, 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 hang on, hang on. He, he was carving that sigil in the flesh of Finrod Feligand, right, back in, in episode one, right? And Finrod Goadriel's brother has that carved on his flesh, which means that he, Sauron, was supposed to be making these plans, what, centuries, potentially, before Morgoth is overthrown? How would that sequencing work? And I think there's actually a pretty clear answer to this. And it's because Sauron was a bad guy. <laughs> that is to say, um, Sauron is not just a loyal, faithful follower of Morgoth. Sauron follows Morgoth because Morgoth is stronger than he is, right? And he believes that Morgoth is going to win. Over time, Morgoth gets weaker and weaker until eventually he's overthrown. This, I believe, to be not lost on Sauron. And it is the nature like... What defines being an evil character, right? How you get to be labeled a bad guy in Tolkien's world is that you are selfish, self-centered. You are seeking your own gain at the expense of everybody else. So Sauron is not going to be unfailingly loyal to Morgoth. As time goes on, and especially as Morgoth begins to get weaker and weaker, he's still very strong, but way weaker than he was, right? It makes perfect sense to me that Sauron would be increasingly trying to feather his own nest. And I think that this even maps onto what we can see in the Silmarillion. Midway through the Silmarillion, Sauron sets up on his own as this new little local Dark Lord, right? Um, uh, and sets up and calls himself through the Necromancer, right? And that, of course, is exactly the time when he kills Finrod uh, in the Silmarillion. So uh, that seems to me to work really well, that there would come a time when Sauron is, is already making, Sauron's a planner, right? And he's going to start setting things in motion so that eventually he is going to be the big bad in Middle-earth. And by the way, I think if time had gone on and things hadn't changed, he might not have waited for Morgoth to be overthrown. The time might have come when Sauron might have wanted to at least set up independently or even tried to rival Morgoth himself. I don't know if it would ever have come to that because Morgoth was pretty huge. But nevertheless, that Sauron would be trying to play his own game and even to have begun playing his own game well before the fall of Morgoth tracks perfectly well for me for what we know about him and what we know about how the bad guys operate in Tolkien's world. Now, we see several other really cool things. I want to mention three other things really briefly that I wanted to make sure that you noticed because they're pretty cool. One is the ring text that we see when Goadriel takes that, that ancient text that's marked in the black speech and she interprets it for, uh, for Elendo and explains it, right? And she explains it to Halbrand as well. Um, if you notice, uh, it's hard to see because it's black writing on, 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 on you know, a, a black piece of uh, canvas or skin or whatever that is, right? But you can see it's in a ring, right? There's the, the, the Mordor sigil in the middle and then there is the, the black speech writing in circles around it, which looks, of course, much like the text on the One Ring, right? The famous circular uh, ring inscription that we're very used to seeing. It's not the same thing, right? But it's a really interesting hint that shows Sauron is already thinking 
in this direction, right? It's almost like a foreshadowing um, the kind of domination that Sauron has in mind, that he already has in mind in the middle of the first age, right? Is something is, this is all leading towards, it's going to merely achieve its culmination in the making of the one ring. It's like this whole plot about how he could establish his own power, how he could get to the top of the heap through his rings of power gambit, right? Has been really brewing in Sauron's mind for a long time. And I really loved that reference. Um, Another thing that we see is the blood oath that uh, Halbrand refers to. Um, and I, I, this is one of the things I'm going to be really interested to see. He says that his ancestor took a blood oath to Morgoth, right? But it's clear that his ancestor comes from somewhere in the greater Mordor region, right? And I'm going to be interested to see how that blood oath plays out. Oaths, as I've mentioned before, are very, very important in Tolkien's world, and they tend to be binding, even if you, like, take it back, right? Even if you, uh, even, even if you try to, to, to deviate from it, sometimes it will not let you go. Is it transferable? Was Sauron involved in the original blood oath? I'm going to be really interested to see how that's going to play out. But here's the coolest thing that I've been thinking about most ever since I saw this episode. So you remember, in the sigil as we've seen it, like, say, the sigil that we see on um, uh, uh, Finrod's flesh, right? You can see the curve of the mountain ranges. You can see, and then you can see a horizontal line through it, right? Well, at least what looks like a horizontal line. But when we see it more closely, we can see there's a little peak, right? A little mountain peak where Mount Doom should be. And a lot of people noticed that. A lot of people really paid attention to that because that's, that's very noticeable, right? It's, it's, it's clearly very important. But when we see the version of the, of the, of the Mordor image, right, the, the, of, of the Mordor rune that Galadriel has drawn on a piece of paper, right, the, in clean lines, black on white, and we get the, the thing that looks like a letter C, which is the mountains. We get the clear one peak inside the middle, which is Mount Doom, but there's another mountain on the other side of the mountains, symmetrical with Mount Doom, with the mountains in between. The sigil of Mordor, which is Sauron's plan, which talks about the center of power he's going to set up to, that all the bad guys should come to, includes not only Mordor, as we have come to know it, not only Mount Doom, which of course we expect to be the center of his power, but also another mountain on the other side. What mountain is that? We know what mountain that is. There's only one mountain that it could be, symmetrical, on the other side of the mountains. Mount Mindaluin, I suspect, where Minas Tirith is built, right? Both mountains seem to be part of Sauron's original plan. And yet we know that in the future, the, the, the children of Elendil are going to build their city on that other mountain, right? Which su suggests to me that in the Rings of Power show, they are setting up, possibly for very long in the future, by the way, this might ha not happen until season five, but they're setting up this really cool thing where the establishment of the kingdom of Gondor is not only to attempt to defend against Mordor, to be a wall to prevent the armies of Sauron from, from moving any further west than the Anduin, right? It's not just that but that they're actually occupying and preventing, they're occupying that mountain, one of those two mountains, and preventing Sauron from completing the building of his power. Um, it's almost like um, they've, uh, the, the, the Gondorians have arrived 
and they've bought up Park Place so that Sauron can't build a hotel on Boardwalk, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like how it, maybe, how it seems to work. I'm going to be, I'm really fascinated to see this work out. I was so excited to see that other mountain on the other side, and I'm going to be really excited uh, to see the final results of this. As I said, we might not see it for a long time, um, but I think it's going to be really cool when we do. One of the most important characters in all of Tolkien's stories is Eärendil. In fact, Eärendil is the character that began all of Tolkien's stories. Um, he came across the name of Eärendil uh, in uh, an Old English poem, and he loved the name, and he began to invent stories. He wrote a poem about this mariner uh, uh, and, uh, among the stars. Um, Eärendil was associated with the stars, from the beginning. So the story of Eärendil goes like this. Eärendil is who brought about the end of the First Age. That long war between the elves and Morgoth that Goadriel talks about was going really badly and the elves were being ground into the dust um, at the very end of the First Age. Eärendil, who was descended from both humans and elves, decided that he was going to take it on himself to sail to Valinor and beg for the pardon and the help of the Valar. And he did this with one of the Silmarils on his brow, the one Silmaril that was recovered from Morgoth. Um, and he bound it to his forehead, and he and his wife sailed in his ship and made it across to Valinor, and they came to the Valar and asked for their help, and that's when the Valar sent their armies to rescue the, el the rest of the elves and the allies of the elves and defeat Morgoth and, def and, come and bring the war and the First Age to an end. Eärendil then, after his intervention, he never returns to Middle-earth. Instead, his ship is placed into the sky, and he still has the Silmaril bound on his brow, so the light of the Silmaril shining in the sky on his flying boat becomes the morning and evening star. So the, the star of Eärendil is a really, really important figure in Tolkien's writing. If you remember in The Lord of the Rings, when Sam is in Mordor and he looks up and he sees this one star shining down, that's the star of Eärendil. If you remember the file of Galadriel that she gives to Frodo, that crystal with light encased in it. That light is the light of Eärendil, the light of the Silmaril on Eärendil's brow. Eärendil is a really important figure. And of course, he's also, by the way, Elrond's father, Elrond and Elros' father. Um, so in episode three, this becomes important. We didn't learn anything about him in the prologue, but in episode three, when we get to Numenor, we encounter Eärendil right away. When we go into uh, the, the, the harbor of Numenor, we see this huge statue standing there, and that statue is Eärendil. Look at his posture here, right? Here's Eärendil standing. He's holding a sword, but he's holding the sword down, showing that the war is over. Fighting is ended, right? Um, so the sword is out, but it's no longer being wielded, right? And his other hand is extended like he's giving the gift, right? The gift of Numenor itself. Remember that Numenor was called the island of the star, the, the land of the star. Um, Goadriel mentions this in episode three. And it was called that because it was by the light of Eärendil's star shining down upon Numenor, like the Christmas star, right, which guided 
the people uh, of Numenor, when they first arrived, showed them the way to Numenor, and so they named it the Land of the Star. Eärendil is really important, in addition, of course, because as I said, he's the father of Elros, who is the first king of Numenor, and the brother of Elrond, who, of course, is still around. Um, so this is... Uh, it, it's, it's fit that we should remember Eärendil, and Eärendil is a really interesting figure in the course of Numenor uh, as we see it in this episode, because, of course, he was about the uniting of elves and men, right? Uh, arguing the cause of both elves and men. And now, of course, within Numenor, they have fallen away from the heritage of Eärendil, and now the Numenorians are separating themselves from the elves instead of joining together as Eärendil did. Now, there's another place in this episode where we got a reference to Eärendil, and that, surprisingly, was among the Harfoots. When the stranger is revealed, right, when the stranger uh, come, you know, blunders into the camp in the middle of the festival and all of the Harfoots see him, Nori clearly has told, she tells it off screen, right, uh, she has told the story of how she discovered the stranger. And Sadok says, I have never heard of stars becoming beings, right, stars descending and becoming beings. He says, I've heard of beings becoming stars, yes. And that would appear to be a reference to Eärendil. This is really interesting on, for several reasons, right? One, it's interesting to hear that the story of Eärendil is apparently told in some form or other such that it is remembered by Sadok, the wise man of this, uh, of this clan, right? Um, I don't know in what form the story of Eärendil has come down among the Harfoots, but that there should be some memory of a dude who became a star is all by itself a really interesting piece of information um, that I would love to kind of learn more about. I would love to hear the Harfoot version of the story of Eärendil. That would be a really cool. So um, if I could make a request, awesome appendix. Could we get that, please? That'd be fantastic. Just a little request. Anyway, um, but here's the other thing that's really interesting about it. The other thing is that it establishes a kind of parallelism, right? The stranger has come down from the stars, at least, again, apparently, within the consciousness of the Harfoots, right? That is the situation. That's how Nori and Poppy talked about it. That's how Sadok talks about it. That's how Marigold, uh, 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 you know, um, Nori's uh, stepmother talks about it, right? Um, as as the, sort of the stars coming down. Sadok says, that doesn't happen. That's a thing that's never happened. The stranger... What happened with the stranger is something which reverses the natural order, reverses the legendary order, right? The, the, well, even the legend of Eärendil itself is now being played in reverse with the stranger coming down. Um, so what does this mean? The per, the, for Eärendil, the moment when Eärendil, who was a being, to use Sadok's term, who became a star, right, was the turning point, was the place where hope entered in, right? Um, the star of Eärendil is called the star of high hope. So is the coming of the stranger to the Harfoots, is it parallel? Are we supposed to see, are we supposed to begin to suspect that the stranger, uh, the coming of the arrival of the stranger here is also in a different way, the arrival of hope, right? Um, the, the, the hope for survival of what's going to be coming afterwards, right? I, I don't really know for sure where the Harfoots uh, uh, plot line is going. But that parallel is really suggestive. Of course, 
we have to point out it's an anti-parallel, right? Arendel went up, the stranger is coming down. Does that suggest that the stranger is different? That the stranger is opposite, right? I mean, you could make the argument if you wanted, I guess, that Arendel brought hope and rose to the stars. Maybe the stranger descends from the stars and is going to destroy hope or something, right? So people who think that the stranger is Sauron would probably prefer that reading, right? Um, but I think not. I think that just as a, it is a reversal, but I think the reversal is all about the direction to Valinor. The Arendel story is about the people in the mortal world, right? The people in Middle Earth reaching out to Valinor to ask for help. I think that the stranger is about the people in Valinor, right? The Valar in Valinor looking down to Middle Earth and, and providing it, right? So they're reaching that way instead of reaching the other way. That's how I think the different directions go. I still think that the stranger is a wizard sent from Valinor, sent in order to provide hope uh, and to help the Harfoots and to help the Harfoots to accomplish whatever it is the Harfoots are going to accomplish for the good of the world. Another comment I got a bunch of times after the first two episodes was, where are the Valar? There were very few references to the Valar, even in the context of the prologue talking about Valinor itself. In Valinor, where were the Valar? Nobody talked about them. Galadriel didn't say a thing about them uh, in the war, or even about the end of the war, which ended when the Valar sent an army to rescue the elves in the war with Morgoth. The elves didn't just eventually win. They got rescued by the Valar. So um, the absence of any references to the Valar seemed really conspicuous um, in episodes one and two. Well, the Valar are back in episode three. Uh, lots of references to the Valar. In fact, um, one of the themes that I found so interesting in episode three was all, lots, of, lots of religious reverence all over the place and in different contexts. Let's talk about that and see if we can sort some of that out a little bit. First, Numenor itself is tied to the Valar explicitly and repeatedly during episode three. When Galadriel is first explaining to Halbrand the history of Numenor, she says that Numenor was a gift of the Valar because the, the, you know, these men had stood with the elves. They were given Numenor as a gift from the Valar. But it's not just Galadriel who remembers that. Muriel herself, when, she is, uh, when she's talking to Elendil, also, she talks about the white tree. And remember that line when she talks about when the petals of the white tree fall? Um, that is, that is, it's like the tears of the Valar. She talked about how the Valar are always watching them. The eyes of the Valar are always on them, right? Um, so there's clearly even in the consciousness of the Numenorians themselves, a very close link between Numenor and the Valar. And this is very appropriate because, of course, the, um, uh, the, ultimately, the rebellion that the Numenorians are working up to, they're already on their way there, but the rebellion that they're working up to is going to be a rebellion against the Valar themselves directly. So... Um, I was really hoping we were going to get more Valar when we got to Numenor, and we absolutely did. Now, one side note, by the way. The prevalence of the references to the Valar, not only in Numenor, but even from Galadriel herself in the context of talking about Numenor, convinced me of something that we didn't have any context for in episode one. 
And that is now looking back at that prologue, I find the absence of the references of references to the Valar very conspicuous indeed. I now rather suspect that Galadriel was omitting references to the Valar because she's, I think, still a bit bent out of shape. Right? This, I think, is an expression of Galadriel's own grief and suffering and anger at the Valar. Remember when Galadriel, in her voiceover, talked about the, 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 the darkening of Valinor, the destruction of the trees, and then she says, but, and, but some of us resisted. Right, as we see the desolated landscape of Valinor, and she says, but some of us resisted. And that's when she tells the story of the elves going out and crossing the sea in order to confront Morgoth. And the Valar, the non-reference to the Valar becomes, in my mind, very loud at that point, right? It's almost an accusation. Why didn't you do anything, Valar? Why didn't you oppose Morgoth? Or at least, you know, avenge the destruction of the... Why were you sitting there doing nothing? We took it on ourselves to do what you weren't, right? And so we went over and fought him because you weren't. And that, I think, is where... I think that Galadriel has some Valar issues herself there um, that we see her, again, kind of perhaps needing to work through that a bit. Now, another note about Numenor, which is very, very conspicuous. Numenor has a very special place as far as like the question of religious things in Tolkien's works, Numenor is unique because in Numenor was the only place in all of Tolkien's writings where there was a place dedicated to the worship of Iluvatar himself. Um, there are very few places of worship. He describes almost no churches, almost no shrines, anything of that kind um, in anywhere in Middle-earth. But in Numenor, there is a place where the Numenorians go to worship Iluvatar himself, against the only such place described anywhere in Tolkien's Middle-earth writings. And where that is, is at the top of the peak of the Meneltarma. The Meneltarma is that central mountain in the middle of the, of the island of Numenor. And at the peak of the Meneltarma is where the Numenorians go for regular ceremonies to worship and, you know, thank Iluvatar and that kind of thing, right? Um, so, Knowing this, I found it very conspicuous. You remember when Isildur is on the ship and he's uh, wool gathering, as, uh, as Sam Gamgee would say. He's not paying attention to what's going on. And there's that moment where he, he hears a voice. And I don't think it's the sea that's calling to him. Maybe it's the sea, but it doesn't look like the sea. It looks like it's coming from the land. Um, and his name is being called out. It looks like it's coming from the Meneltarma. I'm not sure what that's about, but knowing the religious significance of the Meneltarma, I'm going to be really interested to see what exactly is the voice that's calling out. Whose is the voice that is calling out to Isildur? Now, I mentioned the sea. This was one of the things that I was really blown away by in episode three. The fact that the Numenorians have this other religious ritual. The way they talk about the sea is really conspicuous, isn't it? They keep talking about the sea almost as if it's a god that they themselves worship. The sea is always right. Really? The sea is always right? That's the, 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 the slogan, the creed that they keep repeating, right? But then also, remember that scene when Isildur's ship, all right, when he's out with the other cadets and they come back and land and they're standing on the shore 
They've, got their, they've pulled their boats out of the water and they're standing on the shore and they have this ritual moment where they have to stand there looking out to sea and you know, the shipmaster blows his horn, which is a little conch horn right at the end. So he blows his horn and they have this moment where they all stand staring out to sea together. Now, careful readers of The Lord of the Rings will remember the analog scene that they seem to be invoking here in this moment. And that is the moment before dinner with Faramir um, in Henethanun, when Frodo and Sam have been captured by Faramir, right, and um, politely served dinner by Faramir, there's this moment when all of the soldiers stand up and they face to the west um, and have a moment of silence. And Faramir explains that they're looking towards Numenor, that was, and towards Elvenhome, that is, and towards the far west, towards Valinor, whichever shall be, right? It is an act of reverence to an acknowledgement of their history, remembering Numenor, and it is furthermore um, a, 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 an act of reverence to the Valar themselves. It's a religious ritual that they still practice. The, these descendants of Numenorians still practice in Gondor at the end of the Third Age. And there in Numenor, here in episode three, we see them performing a ritual very like that, all rising together and facing the same direction for a moment of silence, but they're not facing west. They're facing out to sea. It's the sea that they're looking towards, not the Valar, but the sea that they're looking towards. Now, but wait, there's more, right? In one sense, this is weird, or rather it's, 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 it's unexpected. It's not something that's described. This is not what the Numenorians should be doing. They should be remembering the Valar, but of course it makes sense that they're not because they're in rebellion, right? We see them in decline. But here's the kicker. They always were worshiping the sea. In a sense, um, the reverence of the sea is tied in their culture. Um, it's, it's, we're told by Tolkien that this was an important part of their culture. Um, there is one of the Maiar. Remember, the Maiar are sort of the lesser spirit. The Valar are the great spiritual beings that rule the world. The Maiar are sort of the lesser uh, spirits that serve under them. One of the greatest of those Maiar uh, is a, a female spirit named Uenen. And Uenen is the lady of the seas. Um, and she is described as having this uh, super long hair. Her hair extends out and fills all of the oceans, right? And we were told, Tolkien says, that the Numenorians reverenced Uenen almost as much as they did the Valar. They, they, they considered her almost as important, as, as close their ally as one of the Valar. So they did show a sort of quasi-religious reverence for the sea. But it was Uenen. Did you notice in episode three, when they refer to the sea, they clearly refer to the sea as masculine. It's not Uenen. It's this masculine sea concept that they're revering, right? So at first I was like, well, maybe they just changed that for some reason, right? Maybe, you know, in this adaptation, they decided, no, 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 we're not going to go with Uenen. We're going to make, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to change that for some reason. But then I noticed uh, something when I was watching the second time that I thought was really cool. There is a statue which shows us that in fact, the show, the Rings of Power show is not forgetting Uenen. When Galadriel goes to the prison to talk to Halbrand, she sees this statue in the prison. This statue is clearly Uenen. It's a female figure with the really long hair. It's got, she's got seaweed in her hair, very conspicuous, and her hair trails down. Not only does it trail down really far, but it merges into the waves 
beneath them. It's clearly a statue of Uenen, but it's not out in public. It's not in a prominent place. It's in the prison, right? They've taken the statue of Uenen and they've put her underground. In fact, they've put her practically behind bars. We see the statue from behind bars at one point, right? So clearly there is a memory that the show is well aware of the reverence of Uenen. And the conclusion I draw from all of these things is that in this this ritual reverence for the sea, that kind of um, increasingly creepy repetition of that frighteningly totalitarian phrase, the sea is always right, right, um, is, I think, clearly supposed to be a kind of perversion as they left the Valar behind, as they turned away from their, their, their old beliefs and their old alliances, they developed this similar but new uh, uh, sort of religion or quasi-religion, which is clearly endorsing the role of the state uh, and the sort of new nationalistic image of Numenor that others in Farazan in particular are going to be championing championing as we move into the latter stages uh, of Numenor's life. Now, there's one other place in the episode um, that we see reverence uh, towards powers uh, being emphasized, and that surprisingly is among the orcs. The orcs show a, not just fear, but reverence, even worship towards Adar, their leader. Remember the, the elves, the, uh, 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 the, the, the captain of the elves who are, who are now all captured, right? Um, they express explicitly that they can't, um, they've never seen orcs act like this. They didn't know that orcs were capable of reverence, right? And yet we see that Adar himself is clearly being worshipped by the orcs. Um, I think that this is significant because one of the things that Tolkien talked about, about Sauron and his rise to power, um, is that he used cult worship a lot, whether it was cults to Morgoth or whether it was cults to, with himself as the god that he was getting people to worship. That was a major part of his routine in establishing his dominance. I expect that to be something we're going to see quite a lot of. And so I think that this religious reverence of the orcs towards Adar is sort of our first taste of the way in which Sauron is going to be taking and manipulating religious worship in order to establish his kingdom. One of the interesting things about the pacing of episode three was that they didn't try to squeeze every single plot line into the episode. We only followed a few of them which means a few of them we learned nothing about. So I am hoping that in episode four, we're going to learn a lot more about the plot lines, which we didn't get anything about in episode three. This means I'm expecting to hear more from Durin and Elrond, how that little piece of dipl diplomacy is continuing. And maybe this, of course, is going to connect through to Celebrimbor, and we're going to hopefully learn more about what Celebrimbor's plan is, and in particular, why it is that he needs his furnace finished by this coming spring. That line really jumped out in that episode. And so I'm going to be, I think we're going to be learning more about that. I think that's got to be important. At the same time, in the context of the larger diplomatic situation, I am certainly hoping we're going to hear more from Gilgalad and that we're going to learn more about what exactly he knows and what exactly he's up to, because he was an extremely tantalizing figure in episodes one and two. 
And then finally, of course, we didn't hear anything from Theo and Bronwyn in this episode. Now, I think it's possible that that means when we return to Theo, we'll be, uh, well, maybe we'll catch him in the middle of like a Nazgul training montage, and we'll be able to see how much closer he is to becoming a Nazgul uh, by the next episode. I'm kind of joking there. Unlikely to move that fast. Again, it's just, I just I'm worried about Theo. I remain worried about Theo. Um, but we'll see what continues to happen with them. I expect that Bronwyn and Theo are going to be following the, you know, Bronwyn was really taking on a leadership position among the people in her town there uh, in slaying the orc and leading them out of town. So I expect that when we finally return to begin some, some war, some defense of the Southlands that Galadriel, I believe, is going to be leading, um, I think it's going to be Bronwyn who's going to be connected with them. So Halbrand coming into that situation led by Bronwyn is where I think we're going eventually. So seeing Bronwyn leading those people is one of the things that I think maybe uh, we'll see in episode four as we continue. In any case, man, there's still so much from episode three that I didn't get a chance to talk about. I said almost nothing about Arondir and his whole scene, you know, his whole set of scenes. Um, I said very little about Aarian, who's one of my favorite new characters. Um, that's Elendil's daughter. Um, I'm not really sure where she fits. I have a bad feeling about her acceptance uh, from the Guild of the Builders, but I don't know for sure where that's going. So I'm going to be interested to talk about that more. Um, Anarian, right? Oh man, at, at, in one point of the episode, I thought it was confirmed that Anarian was being cut from the show. And then he gets alluded to later on. It was like a, a roller coaster uh, for fans of Anarian. Didn't get to talk about that much. Didn't get to talk about the stranger and fire. Didn't get to talk about the puppet show. Man, so many more things still to talk about in episode three. So I hope that you will join me and Maggie at Other Minds and Hands on Thursday afternoon at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We will be doing Other Minds and Hands every week um, right before the next episode drops. So it'll give you a chance to come and discuss with us the last questions that you have and the stuff that you're still thinking through about episode three. In addition, we have a new feature. We have a, we have a place on Reddit where you can go to, par to participate in text discussion on a, on, on, on a Reddit discussion board. Um, the Reddit in question is r slash LOTR on Prime. Um, so if you join us there, there are some sticky threads for each of the episodes of Rings and Realms. So if there are questions that you have or you want to talk things over more with people, those are great places where you can discuss some of the things that we raise in this show. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you guys again next week. Bye now. Bye now.